This is Geek Gab with your host, John and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, August 11th, 2018. And today we have on the show a good friend, Bradford C. Walker, a mainstay of this channel's amazing live chat community here on the show to talk about his uh, brand new in Kickstarter novel right now. But before we do that, I'm going to be just a little bit mean. Are you ready? Uh, John, how was your week? It's doing pretty well. Dang no. it, I didn't catch you. Aha, I was ready for it. And and the I've got a fresh hot waffle right in front of me. So I'm having waffles with uh, butter syrup and blueberries today, which is pretty much the best thing that's happened this week. So, so he's going to be muted the first half of the show because he's enjoying blue uh, waffles with blueberries on top, which is actually much, much better than just blueberry waffles. Absolutely. Uh, it's just plain batter. Blueberries are on the top. And we've uh, we've melted the butter, by the way. So I, I've, I've got a question for you. Um, completely unwaffle related. Um, I, I, but before I do, before I answer this question, is there anything else waffle related we need to talk about? I believe we've exhausted the uh, waffle related topic for today. I mean, we haven't. We've never talked about waffles on the show, or or food in general, for that matter. Um, well, I mean, it would be gab, not the eat gab. Should yeah. we? Should we spin off the Eat Gab, a foodie podcast network? Absolutely. You know, we should make we should make Geek Gab a lifestyle brand. You know, to to, to where we actually just stop talking about movies and TV shows and books and comic books and whatever, and we just pretend that that's what we're all about. But really, we're just about stupid. Uh, Badly named foods, gimmicky foods. I, I think that would bring in a huge audience that has never listened to the show before and at the same time keep 100% of our current audience. I am confident this plan cannot fail. You know, there is one more waffle-related item. What's that? Uh, blueberries are the perfect fruit to top your waffles with. Can you guess why? Because they're small enough to fit into the squares. Absolutely right. Oh, boom! Right off the top of my head. No, I, I did have a I did have a real question though. Uh, that wasn't just an excuse to rant about Marvel's new direction, Marvel's new stupid direction. Um, that might be coming to Wizards of the Coast and Magic: The Gathering and and other uh, such brands in the future. As horrible as that sounds, a couple weeks ago you ended your long-running 5th edition D&D campaign. That's right. Successfully. Yes. And you obviously on the show, we've been talking about old-school stuff. We've been talking about, you know, Holmes Basic and Moldvay and uh, 0th edition and AD&D. And you had expressed some interest in trying to run a more old-school-oriented game and I believe the last point where we left it, as far as the discussion goes, was people talking about Adventure Conqueror King uh, by, um, by uh, 
I think Autark, am I right? I don't know, I don't know what the company is, I, I forgot. Um, which I have heard is an OSR game uh, that takes the best of the original B slash X basic expert system um, and wraps it with some new stuff and makes a very compelling and great game out of it. And so my question was, after this monologue that was an introduction to the prologue to the question is, are you thinking of starting up another game sometime soon? And if so, what, what were you actually moving in that direction towards like BX or adventure conquer King or, or some other system like yeah. that? Yeah. So my, my thoughts of it, thoughts are, are following right now. I'm taking a break over the summer. Yes. And, and so I probably wouldn't start it up till fall. And I'm leaning towards an old school system. I will probably play Moldvay, BX. Uh, I may uh, take a look at Adventure Conquer King system or something like that. Or it may suit my fancy to play a different genre of game altogether. Uh, I've always been a big fan of the cyberpunk games, Cyberpunk 2020 and Shadowrun and, and that sort of thing. So... Uh, no decisions have been made yet, but I am definitely not going to run just a, another 5th edition game. I wouldn't even recommend it to friends. Well, I'll be interested uh, I'll be interested to hear what direction you go in, and of course we'll talk about it on the show because why the hell not? Um, Alright, that all out of the way. The preambles, the prologue out of the way, which by the way, it has, has only lasted 6 minutes, which is kind of impressive for us. Um, we we yeah, had like we like we like our guests for at least eight. We've we've uh, we've actually had prologues that have lasted for like half an hour, where we start talking about something and we do half an hour of stuff before we get to the actual topic of the show, but never with a guest. I will hasten to point out. Speaking of guests, look at that. Uh, you see how I did that there? You see how I eased into that transition? The subtle, almost unnoticeable. A transition there. Speaking of guests, uh, Bradford C. Walker, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back, folks. It's been a long time. Hey, man, welcome back. Has it really been? I mean, I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I just, I don't remember. Has it been a long time, though? Oh, yeah, it's been quite a time, quite a long time, at least a year, um, probably longer. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's... Yeah, the last time I was on, I, um, I'm trying to remember, uh, I hadn't quite started year three of my daily blogging routine, I don't think. I'd have to go back and look. Uh, let's see. We had you on Geek Gab Game Night Episode 4. Uh, if I open that up, uh, yeah. I'll see what. Uh, 28th of June, 2017. So just barely over a year, a year and a month or so. Yeah, you see that, folks? That's how quick my searching skills are. I can do that in real time on the show. I can tell you're impressed. You don't have to say anything. So why is it out of the blue, all of a sudden, with no warning whatsoever, did we abruptly have you back on the show? Well... I decided that I was going to stop just commenting about all the all the need to you know bring back the good stuff in in our culture you know focusing on science fiction and fantasy and actually do something about it. So 
I decided I was going to throw my hat into the ring, and I ended up, uh, you know, taking a prompt that uh, Brian Niemeyer, you know, our beloved former co-host, you know, started with uh, a Gundam for us, and he went in one direction, I've gone another, and uh, that's how we ended up with the Star Knight saga. Okay, so what is a Gundam for us? Okay, a Gundam for us was uh, a hashtag that came up in yeah, in the wake of uh, Nick Cold coming up with uh, Star Wars, not Star Wars, as a way to elevator pitch uh, Galaxy's Edge. And that's where I started when I was uh, first formulating Star Knight, because I was wanting to come up with my own Star Wars with Blackjack and Hookers, just like he did. And about that time, some of the more prominent you know, YouTube channels that focus on anime started putting out uh, commentaries on what happened to the mecha, to the mecha shows, and the, which have precipitously declined in both number and quality over the last 10 or so years. And eventually that, you know, that ended up leading to a kind of conversation of sorts going back and forth and which led to Brian coming up with, uh, you know, summing it up with, we got to come up with our own, you know, with our own mecha shows, our own mecha stories. And that's when a Gundam for us came about. And I'm like, I'm do already doing this, but I really love giant robots. Why not just add giant robots? <laughs> and that's when I started coming up with, uh, you know, coming up with Star Knight as it is now. Um, and, and it can, it was my blend of a couple of things that I absolutely love. My favorite, uh, my favorite anime series is Legend of the Galactic Heroes. And that's a big sweeping space opera with lots of space fleets that number, you know, you know with uh, numbering into the thousands and. You know, millions, you know, you know, millions of casualties per side, and all of that kind of stuff. And then you had, you know, you have your mobile suit Gundams, and you have your your Super Dimension Fortress Macrosses, and all the other uh, real robot shows, where you have uh, the giant robot is a tank, it's an attack helicopter, it's a piece of military hardware, sometimes experimental, sometimes not, and that allows for the more smaller scale material because those shows tend to focus on the characters more than the robots. Then you have your super robot shows, your Mazinger Z's, your Getter Robos, you know, your uh, what in the Western known as, you know, would be known as the, the Force 5 series or Transor Z or Macron 1. And those are ones where the robot is as much a character as it is a machine. And you have the, you know, the super robot as a vehicle for superheroic super action as well as uh, character development. And then so, coming from so, the West, you sorry, have... Let me jump yeah. in there. Um, it sounds like you just described Voltron. Would it be simpler just to say Voltron? Yeah, you could. You could say Voltron if you really just want to sum it up like that. Um, the... <laughs> I don't know. And yeah, one of the ways I do put it to I appreciate that, I appreciate that the that the Gundam lovers are, are heavy into anime, but I think for me, just saving Voltron just says everything that I need to know. Mm -hmm. Vol yeah, it's Voltron plus Robotech plus Star Wars. Let's if you want to throw it throw it down to something very simple that most people in the West will get. There's your there's your mix. 
It's Voltron plus Robotech plus Star Wars. And just for future reference, for those of you in the audience, for marketing purposes, you should do something exactly like that to give people uh, a clear and concise idea of what you're talking about. Trust me, it will pay off. Mm-hmm. Now, and while it's it is you know, it isn't wrong to say that you know Star Knight is those three things put together, you know there's a little more going on under the hood, you know, and that's where um, that's where you know the influences of Edgar Rice Burroughs and E.E. E. Smith in particular come into play. Uh, Burroughs by by way of the Mar series, Smith by way of the Lensman series, and those two in particular. And their antecedents, which are referenced, you know, which are referenced in the form of uh, my hero, Lord Roland, and uh, the old medieval, well, medieval romance, you know, <clears throat> the old medieval romances, and the uh, ancient you know, hero poems that be that came before that. Yeah, because when it comes down to it, when you have a really effective piece of culture, you know, of cultural uh, entertainment, it always builds on what came before and in order for something to have that that verisimilitude you know that that quality that feeling of being real not not factual but being true if you understand the distinction you always have to go back to what uh what makes you know what makes men heroic what makes women virtuous what makes villains truly vile and you have to bring that forth in form in a form that a contemporary audience is going to readily understand. Um, and ironically enough, that's what we call market facing these days, because that's what the audience wants. And I allow the silence to settle in just to see if anybody else has something to say. Here's the thing. Um, I actually think that there is something compelling, and, and I have recently come to realize, this just this last week, that there are lots and lots of movies and TV shows that I want to watch that I'll never have a time to watch because I'm too busy doing lots and lots of things. And so it it's just this last week, I had to let go of a whole lot of things I wanted to see and just stop worrying about it and just focus on what I'm doing right now. And then hopefully sometime in the future, I'll get to them. That is why that even though I haven't seen any of the Robotech TV shows, and I understand there's problems, big changes in bringing it from Japan to America and that the American Robotech doesn't you know, represent Japan's version accurately. I understand that. Put that aside for a second. Even though I haven't seen any of those shows, I wanted to see them. And what made me realize that um, is that when I was a, in high school, the novels for the Robotech series were coming out, and they were really big. A lot of people read them. They were very popular. And then before the ending of it, they abruptly stopped publishing them. And then I remember it being 10, 15 years later. It might have been shorter than that, but I remember it being really long time. They actually came out with the final book that tied it all up, the last book. And even though it had been 10 or 15 years since I had read the previous books, 
I went and I found that and I read it just to, you know, finish the story, just to know exactly what happened with the super dimensional fortress and all of that. So um, even though a lot of this genre can to some people seem, um, people complain about being unrealistic or whatever, it's actually really compelling and it works in multiple forms, works in animation, works in books, works in video games. And I think it's something that, you know, that's been lost on both sides of the Pacific in the last 10 years. Um, you know, for, my, for me, the big marker that something's gone wrong is that when uh, one of the two big franchises in Japan, and the Macross franchise, had a steep decline from, uh, from Macross Frontier, which was what, 2006, 2007, and then roughly a decade later, you had Macross Delta. And Delta, despite having a number of, of uh, parts to that production that turned out to be pretty popular, it didn't gel. It didn't come together. And it turns out when you, you know, look at what the, what the Macross franchise is about, they managed to flub the execution badly. And that's why it seems so lackluster. And... A lot of the a lot of giant robot properties in Japan have had this problem over the last you know ten to twenty years, to the point where you see very few ongoing attempts at new properties that actually succeed. You get one season, maybe two if you're lucky, but you don't see anything with breakout potential coming anymore. Um, and which means that you have a contraction down to the core properties that define a given niche uh the real robot shows have been suffering but super robot shows in particular have been just getting decimated um the, you know to the point where it's a it was a very big deal earlier this year that one of the granddaddies of giant robots mazinger z released a new movie and had a in had a simultaneous worldwide release and that's really been about it. Nothing else has really hit. You you don't see a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of hype for anything involving giant robots right now. And it's been like that for some time. So what I think is happening is that uh, there's a certain amount of uh, you know there's a certain amount of lack of. You know, there's a lack of willingness to experiment. There's a lack of willingness to follow through. There's a lack of willingness to stop, assess where your audience actually is as opposed to where you think it is and change what you are producing to actually satisfy what that audience wants. Because a lot of what's coming out just isn't hitting the mark. So, so what is it that they're doing wrong? I honestly think that a lot, there's a, you know, I think this is a, a byproduct of what happened in the animation trends since the turn of the millennium. Uh, between 2000, 2010, there was a shift and you can see this if you ever uh, go to YouTube after the show and you look for, uh, um, you know, videos that, that document 
uh, openings over a given period span of time or uh, or uh, theme songs for over a given span of time and they show you the an the uh, the animated intros you'll see that there is a turnover between 2000 and 2010 from mostly hand-drawn cel-shaded animation to computer-generated animation and it's that turnover that leads to a quality of suck uh, and <laughs> And yes, uh, JD Cohen in the chat and notices that, you know, since uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion in 1997, every you know, post-Ava anime is still reacting to it. And yes, he's right. It is exactly like what, ha what Watchmen did to American comic books. And it has to stop. You know, get out your filthy Frank memes and, you know, the guy with the giant clock. You know, get them out and you know start posting wide. You know, or wide. It has to stop. You know, you've got to stop reacting to this. It has long since had its day, had its influence, had its due, and it's time to let go and you know build anew. But uh, um, I still don't understand what it is that they. What has happened in the. You know, if the books or if the movies and the TV shows are becoming more and more rare, you'd expect the audience for them to increase because people want, really want to see them. But it seems like they're doing something to drive their audience away, and I'm wondering what that is. I, you know, from what I gather from the shows that actually have any traction, most of them have most of them have fallen into this kind of you know into this the same kind of you know. Uh, postmodern nihilistic narcissistic trap where you have plots that go nowhere you have you have conflicts or non-conflicts that don't resolve properly you have heroes who are either not properly heroic or they are they they are obvious cardboard cutouts that you know that ape the the motions but don't have the substance um and you see, I hate to use Vox Day's terminology when I don't think it—I don't think it really helps. But this is one of those times where it does. Far too many Japanese male you know, protagonists for the last twenty years since Evangelion have been gamma males. They've been John Scalzi's in animation form, and they—and it just has to stop. It's a turnoff. It's a continuing turnoff. You can tell when you know you're not exactly getting the the you know the the Draco Malfoy effect, but you're getting something like it, and it's really starting to drag the entire anime industry down. So their heroes to make shows more than most. Their heroes are no longer heroic. Their heroes are uh, wimps, cowardly, passive, reactive. They're not bold and strong and heroic people. Yeah, I mean, it's worth pointing out. Um, we ran out of syrup, by the way, so it's it's worth pointing out that, that part of the problem is that Evangelion was sort of structured as a coming-of-age story because of the loser young protagonist, and it just didn't turn out that way. I don't know whether uh, the writers didn't know what they were doing, or I, someone somewhere is going to blame that on the differences between Eastern literature and Western literature, but it's uh, they didn't even tell the story correctly. So I'm assuming that you're 
uh, the Star Knight saga addresses that. Before I before I jump to that though, to give you a chance to show how Star Knight saga you know wants to reinvigorate things, I, I want to mention this. I went and saw because it bears directly on this discussion. I went and saw The Meg yesterday. It's a brand new movie with Jason Statham in it, and he fights this gigantic megalodon, this shark uh, that is uh, just absolutely absurdly massive megalodons are. Um, and I will say this about the hero, not about the movie as a whole, but him as a hero was believable, assertive, uh, masculine, uh, active, and not reactive. He wasn't a loser. He wasn't. Um, he was not Paul Rudd in the recent Ant Man and the Wasp. If you want to look at the differences between a successful heroic character, and I'm not saying the movie was perfect. There were way too much of wanting to build up the female other female lead at his expense and her making lines and making jokes of him, which you absolutely in an action movie, you shouldn't do in an action movie in an action book or an action comic. You never make the lead look like a chump because you immediately move out of heroic action and you move into subversive deconstruction and it isn't going to do what you think it will unless you're deliberately trying to make a deconstruction of the genre. That said, if you look at the differences between Paul Rudd and uh, Jason Statham in Ant-Man and the Wasp and in The Meg, you can see very, very clearly the passive, loser, uh, victimized, uh, led around by uh, you know his more capable, more intelligent, uh, stronger... Uh, female cohort or an actual masculine hero who takes the initiative. And if you want to go one step further with a Jason Statham movie, um, The Expendables is a great modern illustration of those kinds of heroic virtues that make your story more compelling, that make your story more interesting. So if I'm understanding you correctly, it sounds like the Japanese people who have made anime took one particular character who was weak, kind of a loser, and then took that as a template and made everything, all the other heroes after that. Is that right? It's distressingly common after Evangelion came out. Um, and it, the reason I can say this is because some of the notable uh, um, giant robot shows that came out after Evangelion are notable because the character who is our hero is not that guy. Uh, you had, you know, roughly the about shortly after Evangelion came out, you had the la the final of what is called the Brave series, Gaio Gaigar, and the name is a mouthful. But when you know, there's a reason why this series in particular it has its fandom, and that's because it's, you know, it is unabashedly heroic and masculine the heroes are 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 not chumps they're leaders they're they're uh willing to to, to risk everything to you know in pursuit of their duty etc cetera, etc cetera. and then uh, then about 10 years after evangelion you had gurren lagan and gurren lagan you know you know hell when john c wright can go on for like two hours at a stretch about how you know how Gurren Lagan completely blew his expectations away, and only really had a problem with it with its ending. 
you know, that's that tells you just how much of a high quality work it really is. And again, the entire series is built around this this notion of being of being assertive, being well for men masculine, for women being virtuous, uh, for showing courage in the face of fear, never backing down from um, from the seemingly impossible odds, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Something that is unfortunately uh, not very common, you know, in a lot of other anime and a lot of other manga, a lot of you know, et cetera, et cetera. So and you see this, you see this, this pattern recur when um, you end up seeing uh, what is prized in some of the more popular uh, shonen series like Naruto, and some of the so, more uh, you, and it's addressed as a theme in things like Attack on Titan. Where they actually talk about this as a you know as a matter you know the characters actually argue about this at points, whether or not it's good to be heroic or not, and uh, you so know, how does Star Knight Saga um, take back this ground? Well, uh, I have said on my blog that you can make the you can trace a line of of literary descent. Between, you know, between uh, Homer through, you know, from Homer through the uh, through the medieval romances, you know, the matter of France, Britain, and so forth, uh, to Edgar Rice Burroughs with uh, with John Carter and Dejah Thoris, and then through him to E. E. Smith, who took planetary romance and scaled it up into space opera, and that's that would led the way. Uh, in the West for Star Wars, and in the East for uh, for Macross, for Gundam, for Legend of the Galactic Heroes, and a lot of other space opera. Yeah. And because of that, space opera, therefore, I argue, is an inherently heroic genre, and it requires properly heroic characters. So, Star Knight's, you know, Star Knight. I have my he my hero is he is not. A mewling teenage boy who doesn't know what he's doing. He is an, he is a mature man. He was thirty years old as of this the first book here. He already knows what he who he is, what he does, etc. etc. Um, I previously described this kind of protagonist as an iconic hero. He is not someone who is who is changed by the course of events. He is someone who changes the world. Over the course of events, he imposes his core ethos upon you know, his environment time and again because he is an order bringer. He brings order in out of chaos and makes certain that order ma is maintained. And uh, not just my particular character, uh, iconic heroes as a class, as a literary class, that's what they do. You see this in all the good James Bond films, you see this in all the good action films. Etc. 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 And in order to have a properly heroic, you know, heroic man, you need to have a properly virtuous woman, and that is our love interest, Countess Gabriella Robin. Um, she's not an action hero. She's not one of these strong women who need no man. Nope. She uh, she is someone who manages to face adversity and overcome it. Through the strength of through her strength of character and the uh, you know and the the charismatic draw that her that the purity of her character 
has upon people. Um, in book one, you know, this becomes apparent with uh, starting in part two when she's already been captured by the villain and she ends up starting to have an effect on things because she has another minor character uh, who's uh, imprisoned with her. And I won't give away who that is just yet. You know, but through, you know, her, you know, her charisma influences this character to take you know, risks greater than he had already taken in order to, uh, in order to, you know, help her overcome her present, uh, you know, her present circumstances and eventually lead the hero to the heroine and, you know, bring the, the conflict to, in the book to its conclusion. So, um, in talking about your book, it's been in Kickstarter now. And how, and uh, Indiegogo. It's at Indiegogo. Indiegogo. Okay. The, and by the way, folks, the link to uh, the Indiegogo and the link to the uh, work in progress cover art uh, are both in the description underneath the video uh, for those of you watching this on YouTube. And we also, I also dropped the link uh, very early on in the chat. So you can scroll up and see that there. Um, on Indiegogo, and you've you've funded, right? You're completely funded. Yeah, uh, I managed to get I managed to to get to my to my goal just over a week into it. And, um, that's just been astounding because uh, let it be. You know, I've said I've said this previously. I am you know, as an in terms of being an author, I am completely new. I am starting with zero. I have uh, I have you know some peers I have peers and friends who are who have been you know helping out and putting out the good word and you know vouching for me here and there, but uh, you know I'm not coming into this with uh, a past history in trad pub. I'm not coming into this with uh, you know with anything other than you know other than a wish, a gumption, and some knowledge of what the hustle is. So. You know, the fact that I, that until now, until, you know, until, uh, until late yesterday, I did not have so much as a cover to show. And yet I had a, I had my project, you know, hit its initial goal and I'm into the stretch goals now. That is fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, I honestly... I honestly hope that my Artanon, you know, you know, will will be able to uh, will be able to put ink to that pencil drawing that's uh, been previously linked in the chat here. And uh, after the show, I will amend my blog post for the day to put that up so that people can actually see what the cover art candidate is at this stage. And um, as soon as possible, I want to have people look at this cover and. And there's a really good reason for it, and not just the fact that it it will probably trigger a lot more people to you know put down money for it, you know, for the book. I went looking through uh, old magazine covers, through uh, on TV and film, you know, cover, you know, posters and such, because I wanted to see if the three elements that define my series have ever been combined on a cover or a poster before, and the answer is no. Those three elements are a space battleship, a giant robot, 
and the guy with the lightsaber, the beam sword, you know, whatever it is. You know, I call them beam swords in the book because I don't want to take the chance of getting sued. And I mentioned this with, well, with Ardenon when we started talking the cover, and that's what is going to be on, you know, that's definitely going to be on the cover, and therefore the cover to book one is going to be a world first. And that's why I wanted to reveal it here, because uh, the sooner you know, the sooner people can see that I have something not only novel but something that has not been done before. I think is probably get more people excited and want to jump on the hype train, and uh, which is going to be good for what I want to do with Star Knight in the long term. Um. So, who's the main antagonist in the book? Uh, the main antagonist, uh, our villain of the book, and in fact, he's probably going to—he's going to be sticking around for a couple. Um, is a you know is a near human named you know, known as Red Eyes. Uh, he he is <clears throat> he is actually a scion of the Nephilim along with his sister, Zuzu the Painbringer, and the executive officer of another uh, villainous character, Dashing Jack, uh, a character by the name of Gory. These three characters are, you know, are taller than normal people, you know, taller than normal people. Red Eyes is nine feet. Gory and Zuzu are about eight feet tall. They have blue skin, blue skin and uh, canine, you know, style teeth. And, uh, they claim to be the scions of Babylon, of the you know of the ancient world. And Red Eyes's goal, you know, goal as it becomes apparent uh, over the course of the book, is that he wants to reestablish Babylon, and that means, in effect, he wants to conquer the entire galaxy and bring it under one rule, so that everybody has one tongue, one language, and you know, and venerates one you know, and venerates one god, but it's not the god of galactic Christendom. And in effect, he wishes to re he wishes to rebuild the Tower of Babel on a galactic scale. And in order to do this, he needs, you know, he needs to secure very powerful alliances, one of which is with a fallen angel. And in order to secure this alliance, he needs to he needs to give this fallen angel a bride worthy of that angel's uh, you know superhuman stature, and that means getting the most beautiful woman that he can possibly find, and that is Countess Robin, who is known as one of the treasures, the living treasures of uh, of the galaxy, the songbird of Second Salisbury, and what you know what ends up happening is that when uh, of course the villains manage to successfully abduct her this sets off a series of events that uh the characters in the later books will re start referring to as the matter of the milky way and this particular event will be uh, referred to as the taking of gabriella robin and uh much like the the real world matters france rome and uh and england um, these will be referred to, you know, referred to in ways that um, will reflect, you know, that will reflect one the culture of of my setting, and two, uh, it's 
one of the ways I'm going to, I, I like to put in my little uh, literary pretenses here and there where I talk about how, you know, how events, you know, shape things going forward and the telephone effect and all of that stuff. So what is the uh, future for this that you envision? And I don't mean like the plot, the future of the stories in the books. I mean, what is the future of the Star Knight saga? What do you envision? What do you want to do with it? Oh, um, now we're going to be talking ambition. Uh, no, I on, in, I want Star Knight to build up, you know, to build up to become something that, you know, by the time I am, you know, I'm effectively the next, you know, I'm as old as Stan Lee. I want Star Knight to become one of these, uh, you know, one of these, you know, properties that everybody of a certain age knows and has in turn spur, you know, sparked other people to, you know, to build their own, you know, I want people in 30, 40 years to be going, yeah, I wanted to make my own Star Knight with, with blackjack and hookers. So I'm effectively going for, uh, no, for uh, I want to fork and replace Star Wars. That's what it comes down to. I want to completely replace that moribund, that moribund infested, you know, property. I want to supersede it. I want to, you know, I want to uh, have games made about it. I want comic book adaptations. I want to go, you know, I want to go east and uh, make anime great again by, you know. By making deals with with whomever in the Jap you know, in the Japanese industry is willing is willing and able to see an opportunity staring them in the face, you know, but all of that has to start somewhere. And right now, that means I need to focus on putting out nine solid novels. And uh, shortly after that, I want to start looking at comic book adaptations and audiobook adaptations because those are the next two steps that I can reasonably you know reasonably pursue and attain with the resources I have at present. All right. Um, we are getting on towards the end of the show. Um, let me bring on my co-host who has been waffle related silent for the entire show uh it's, it was pretty interesting to hear the whole the whole thing i did have a couple of questions for uh bradford mm -hmm. but, uh i i had one in particular and and uh the, the time is gone but i'm gonna ask it anyway there's uh, a couple of times you talked about uh heroes being masculine and heroines being virtuous so it occurred to me that well, let me start with the background. I, I agree with the notion in amongst the Pulp Rev that one of the problems we have with modern stories is that our male leads aren't sufficiently heroic. Uh, another, word, another word to say that would be they aren't sufficiently virtuous. They do not show masculine virtues such as bravery and, and, and heroism and so on. Uh, and a couple times you said that heroines get by on their virtue, and and that was a red flag to me because you uh, you said that they should be virtuous, but you were able to clearly articulate what makes a male lead virtuous. What do you think makes a heroine or female lead virtuous, or uh, even even as a secondary character? Let's say she's the you know, she's Asia Thoris, the space princess, right? What what makes that type of character virtuous? 
in your mind? Mm. First and foremost, I like the you know I like it when I see my heroines uh, displaying you know displaying a, a certain degree of fortitude and loyalty towards uh, towards those whom they they profess to love, and so it can be the it can be filial devotion from a daughter to her father, it can be uh, marital devotion between husband and wife. Uh, it could be uh, it could be uh, matronly, you know, devotion between a mother and her son. Uh, they, you know, something like that. You know, whereas the contrast, of course, is the uh, the woman who is easily tempted, you know, tempted into licentiousness, who is easily uh, who's easily convinced that you know. She should, you know, she should dis discard these ties because they're boring or, you know, she's not living, you know, she's not living the most exciting possible life that she can. Um, you know, it is very much a matter of uh, defining, you know, defining uh, you know, virtue, you know, virtue in this sense is very much a matter of, you know, of denying the moment in order to in order to safeguard the long term and i always see the you know these kinds of character you know these kinds of characters these kind of character arcs as being uh being examples of of always being able to think in terms you know in terms greater than you know thinking uh <clears throat> think in terms of uh someone other than yourself and think in terms greater than the moment, and in particular for a heroine, this is necessary because one of the ways that liter you know, literature, in particular, and is important to culture, is to show positive examples that you know positive examples, and in terms of a role model, of what happens when you adhere to these virtues. And versus what happens when you abandon them. Um, thanks. That was an interesting answer. Thanks. Did you have a? Do you have another question before we? Uh, no. It. Are we wrapping up now? Mm -hmm. We are moving on towards getting close to starting to wrap up. Yes. <laughs> now. You know, for those who do like, you know, who do like their action girls, yeah, um, you know, book one of a series, I, I maintain, should be kept, you know, should be kept somewhat simple because you're doing so much introduction and you don't want to overwhelm the reader. But, you know, in book two, you know, book, you know, in book two, there will be, you know, you, you're going to see. You know that my heroines are not all passive. Um, I won't tell you who it is because it's going to be a new character. But you know, if you think I'm being a bit too passive with the women right now, wait for book two. That's all I've got to say. So if you can make the absolute best pitch you could in like two seconds, what would it be? Mm-hmm. If Here's you're really sick, yeah. If you're really sick of what you know of what's out there right now, and you wish there was something better, 
you know, you know, come take a look at Star Knight Saga. We've got Voltron, you know, Voltron, Robotech, you know, Star Wars, and you know, and Legend of the Galactic Heroes all in one big satisfying gumbo. Oh, that's a great description, by the way. Um, and I, I want to focus for just a second. This is not a, by the way, this is not a criticism of you necessarily or a comment on you. Although I do have a criticism of you. Let me let me slip in the criticism real quick. Um, when I was getting ready to make the video today, I wanted to find the link to the Indiegogo where your uh, where your you know campaign was, so I could put it in the description, which I did, so people can buy it, which you can't. Um, I went to your Twitter page. And I scrolled through like the first 50 or 60 tweets on your Twitter page, and mm. not a single one of them was a link to your Indiegogo. Um, oh, yeah. False. I should. Yeah, you're right. I should have had something <laughs> up in the last, in the last, uh, you know, 12 hours at the very least. Yeah. Uh, something new. And also, while your campaign is live, pin that to the top. Um, and so. Believe it or not, that that does lead directly into my next point. Um, and again, this is not about you. It's just a larger point thinking back over. I mean, this is the 151st show that we've done. Plus, we've done 11 episodes of Game Night, 30-something, I think, episodes of On the Book. So all the authors or uh, aspiring authors who are listening to this show, I want to tell you one of the most important things I've noticed about authors who come on the show and talk about their books. You absolutely must, knowing yourself in your own head, all this morass of creative impulses that have gone into your work, what you intend to do with it or what you have done with it, who your characters are, where they come from, where they're going, what happens, what works have inspired you, what works have negatively inspired you, what has happened in the field you're working in. All of those things are important for you as an author to know when you're making your book. You think about them, you ruminate on them, you go out, you try to make the best book or, you know, comic or TV show, whatever. But when you go to talk to a reader, you need to stop looking at behind the scenes, okay? I'm going to analogize this to a Hollywood Western town. If you look at a town in a Western from one way, you can see that all the buildings are fake, that they're flats, that they are just there to look good on camera. Then when the camera goes to shoot so the audience can see it, they see the fronts of the flats and it looks like a real building. The audience accepts it as a real building. Behind the scenes, audience impact. What you need to do when you go to talk about your book in public, to draw in an audience as much as possible, you need to think about not the behind the scenes stuff. You need to think about the audience impact stuff. How is it going to look when the audience goes to read your book or whatever? What is it in that that they see? What actually comes out on the page? What is it that they see 
that is good or compelling, why? Then you tell them why. You say, okay, if I'm reading my book, it's got smart, funny characters, uh, frenetic action, evil villains who are threatening to destroy whatever. Learn what's in the book that the audience sees and appreciates. Condense that all down and put it into the most appetizing form possible to draw the audience in. If I had one major criticism of basically every author who's come on the show with a couple of exceptions, it's that most of you haven't done that, haven't looked at what the audience will see condensed it down and tried to sell them to get them into the theater to see it. The one exception, not the only exception, but the biggest exception I can think of is Nick Cole's Galaxy's Edge. And I say this is an exception because Nick didn't do it for Soda Pop Soldier or for um, Control-Alt-Revolt or for his other books. And he only accidentally did it, I believe it was an accident, with Galaxy's Edge, this came up in an email accidentally from his uh, co-writer, Jason Onsbach, describing the series. He started off by saying, the galaxy is a dumpster fire. Now, that phrase works perfectly to show an audience what they're going to get when they read the book. And you need to do that with your own work. You need to spin it around, look at how it looks to the audience, and then in order to sell it, you've made this movie. In order to sell it, you have to get people to come into the theater. So you take all the stuff that they're going to see and you condense it down into a pitch, think about it, practice it, have your pitches ready. And you want to build several of them so that when different questions come up, you can answer those questions. So what's so great about your hero? Oh man, my hero is smart. He is hardworking. He comes from a really rich background. He's you know the son of a rich man, but he has worked hard his entire life. And uh, because of the privations he went under voluntarily, he's perfect to answer the call when this particular disaster happens. Okay, great. Short, we know why we would like your guy. He's smart. He's driven, and even if he could have been lazy his entire life because he's rich, he chose not to be. He chose to go out and make something about himself. Bam! We know why we should like your character. We already like him a little bit just by hearing that, okay? Take all the things the audience is going to like about your book, condense them down, and get those ready to hand out. When an interviewer like me asks you a question... That is an opportunity for you to sell your book. And I don't mean to tell people how much it is or where they can go to get it. It's an opportunity for you to make your work sound as appealing and exciting as possible. So if I have one criticism of authors is that they spend a lot of time on behind the scenes influences and not enough time thinking about 
what it is about their work that will make the audience excited. Figure that out, boil it down, and get ready to throw it out when people ask you questions about your book. I guarantee that will help you reach the audience and convince the audience to come and read. Now, now we're wrapping up. <laughs> Sorry, Brad, I'm not, I'm not criticizing you. Uh, it's just, it's something I've been thinking about for a long time. I had a conversation with Dominica Lane about marketing books and stuff, and I've been thinking about that for the last week or so, ever since I had that conversation with her. And that's the first thing that came to mind. Do you have any last words about your book? <clears throat> no. At this point, I'm, you know, I'm confident that yeah, that people who come to the to the uh, Indiegogo page will be, you know, and read the read the excerpts I've posted into the campaign updates, you know, will like it enough to want to at least throw, you know, at least get you know, back it at the level of getting an ebook. Um, and if I can get you that far, I'm pretty certain you'll want to stick around for for book two, book three, and so forth. You know, just give me 500 words. Give me a Give me one. You know, you know, give me one blog post, and I will probably be able to sell you on the rest. Um. All right, folks. Star Knight Saga is up on Indiegogo. Again, the uh, link is in the description of the video. Um. And the brand new uh sketch for the cover it isn't a full cover yet it's a work in progress the link to that is also in the description underneath the video and it's also in the chat if uh you know you're playing this back later on youtube you get to see the chat and participate in the uh well not participate in but at least read the fascinating discussion we've had going on in chat before we head out let me uh grab door and all and see what he has to say uh, hey, man, I wanted to say I actually, I backed the Star Knight Saga. I, I went for the Dead Tree version, so I'm looking to forward to seeing what you come out with. Uh, uh, you you and all, uh, after that rant, I think you and other uh, independent authors should add a burn cream option to their Indiegogo page uh, to, re to recover from that rant. But it's been really good to have you on. I'm uh, glad you can come back and talk about this. I'm looking forward to seeing what you got. And uh, as usual, thanks a lot to everybody hanging out in chat. We've had a nice, lively discussion uh, with uh, Bradford and everybody else throughout the show. Uh, likewise, I want to thank you for coming on, Brad. Um, and again, that, that wasn't necessarily aimed at you. That's not a, a burning to you, but it is something I've seen that I think a lot of authors need to learn. It is not just your job to make a good work of art, to make a great and exciting novel. It is also your job to figure out how best to sell it and absolutely work on making your stuff as great as you possibly can and then work on thinking about how to sell it the best you can because there's something about your book that you loved, some idea that the audience you want to find you think will love too. Figure out what you loved about it that the audience will also love and figure out how to phrase that concisely and compellingly and you have a great head start on marketing your book. So, um, this has been Geek Gab, Saturday, August 11th, 2018, episode 151, uh, Bradford C. Walker and the giant robot star Night Saga.
I want to thank everyone who has been listening to this live and participating in the chat. I also want to thank everyone who's listening to this later on YouTube, on SoundCloud, uh, on the Google Play Store, or on the iTunes Store. You can subscribe to us in all those places and listen to one of the best shows available on YouTube. Honest, folks, would I lie to you? No, I would not. Thank you for turning in, everybody. Uh, be sure to subscribe, like the video, click on the bell icon to get announcements of when this show is going live so you can come and participate. We are leaving you for today, but don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.